Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart and I'm joined this week by John McKenzie. Hello, John. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, first to say, our, our normal host Joe is not here this week. Uh, he is on holiday. So you'll have to bear with me because I've never done this before, but fortunately, John is an experienced podcast hand. In fact, the roles have been reversed here a few times, have they not? Yeah, this is first time I've ever been interviewed by you for a podcast, so there you go. <laughs> well, we shall, we shall try and keep it smooth and flowing. Um, John uh, is a freelance writer uh, on football for, among others, The Economist, The Eye Paper uh, and Fansided. He's also writing a book about uh, the subject of today's podcast, which is uh, Marcelo Bielsa and Leeds, uh, and keeps us up to date with that uh, book and its progress via a very, very entertaining email out called Obielsa Ovida. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. <laughs> I think so, yeah. I think that's um, good. So let's, let's kind of get cracking with, with Bielsa and Leeds. Leeds United is obviously a historically a big club. They've won the first division three times. They've won the FA Cup. They've been runners up a lot. But to my mind, they're associated both with a certain kind of pragmatism, particularly under Don Reeve when he was in charge during probably their most successful period, um, but also subsequent kind of financial issues under Peter Ridsdale. Doing a Leeds has its own Wikipedia entry. Um, so how has a, a club which is kind of arguably below the level that it ought to be at um, managed to attract this complex, charismatic, at times divisive figure, Marcelo Bielsa? Yeah, there's, I think there's two prongs to that question. One of them is about Leeds itself and, and what is the nature of, of Leeds. Um, and I suppose the question that I would ask, I don't know if you want to go down that route pri- primarily. You, or- you steer wherever you want okay. to go. Well, yeah, the things that, that that interest me about that that sort of um, that sort of route is is what what does it what what is Leeds like? What is a football club? Um, when you think about the idea of of how you might define a club, and and as you said, Leeds have become synonymous with this notion of of sort of promising so much and then in the end offering so little. So you have the Revy years, you have uh, you have Clough coming in and then failing to to. Um, Bring, bring the club to where the, the owners at that time thought that they would be. Uh, then you have the sort of a success just at the, just at the outset of the Premier League era. So winning, winning the first division the final time before it became the Premier League. Uh, and then moving into, I guess, being a, a top four side, um, but then making the Champions League, hitting the semi-finals of the Champions League, um, and then um, having the financial difficulties dropping out again. So I think it's safe to say that, that that Leeds does have some kind of does have some kind of feel to it. Um, what I think is interesting when you talk about Bielsa being um, a figure who is is ambiguous is that I think you know actually the, the narrative about Leeds is actually quite ambiguous as well. So it's, it's always assumed that that someone like Revy was 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 one thing and, and Clough was another. Um, but the club has always been seen in the shadow of Revy. It's always been Revy's Leeds United. And actually, I do think that, that what's interesting about Bielsa, and um, he, gets en- he gets asked in his inaugural press conference, um, do you prefer Revy or do you prefer Clough? Uh, which is a, a kind of weird question to ask someone. I suppose he probably doesn't have a huge knowledge of, the, of, that, of that history. But one of the things I'm doing in the book is I'm finding out that, that Bielsa is, is very much a third positionist in many ways. And I use the word third positionism um, purposefully because of the, the political side of things. So um, 
there's all kinds of reasons why uh, Bielsa might be a third positionist. But one of them is is that um, he com- he comes from a family who is very Peronist in in Argentina, um, and third position third positionism is is simply this idea that you know you're you're adopting a political position which isn't capitalism and isn't communism. It's somewhere in the middle. And for me, and, and something that I'm trying to get th- to throughout the book is that actually there's so many uh, areas in Bielsa's life where he sits in between two positions and he doesn't quite adopt one. He also doesn't quite adopt the other. So the question of uh, Revy versus Clough for me is interesting because in many respects, Bielsa adopts aspects of both. Um, well, uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, obviously one of the things that, that people often talk about with Bielsa, indeed, Jonathan Wilson and his kind of main chapter on, on Bielsa and uh, Angels with Dirty Faces, it's entitled The Third Way. Yeah. And it's this uh, synthesis of the the Bilardo and the Minotti mm-hmm. schools of, of Argentine football, kind of anti-football, pragmatism, aggression versus uh, attacking, flair, intuition. And Bielsa seems to synthesize these two and, and find a new way out of the middle. To me, and I, you know, I defer to you on this because I don't know as much, particularly about Revy, but it, it seems to me that actually in some ways Revy and Clough could be Bilardo and yeah, Menotti in I that sort of way. Extent. Yeah, and I think, again, with, 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 with Revy, I think he gets, he gets a hard time because he is sort of seen as being this guy who, who sort of drops into this sort of paranoia by the end. Um, and was, was, he was sort of touted as, as a manager who was going to end up uh, managing England. And, and he does that for a very brief time. He gets in trouble for all of these financial bung rumours that are flying around and he ends up going out to the Middle East and, um, and, and taking up a job there and dropping out of football almost entirely. But in many respects, actually, you know, Revy was, was a very um, progressive manager in terms of scouting. He had, he would, he had dossiers of, in preparation for each club that Leeds were going to play. So uh, in, in, in many respects, you, you sort of have that, that sort of pragmatism and, and, that, and that sort of um, calculated aspect that you get in, in, with Bielsa. Um, but then at the same time, obviously, with, with, with Clough, um, you, you, you have a little bit more of the um, spritzatura, this, this, a little bit more ex- excitement, a little bit more uh, showmanship um, as, as well. But whether or not they break down along the same lines as Minotti and Bilardo, I don't know. But there is this kind of appeal to the emotional aspect mm-hmm. that, that Clough really seemed to stoke and thrive on, both mm. in his relationship with his players, but also with his fans. And I think that is something that Bielsa, wherever he's borrowed mm. that from, certainly tunes into. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm only vacillating on, on this because I'm, I'm, I, I agree that there is, there is a sort of two, there is this sort of uh, duality that you were talking about in Argentinian football. I'm just not sure it divides quite as neatly across the lines for Revy and, and Clough. Um, there's aspects of some that you would expect the other to have and, and vice versa. You would expect, I think, maybe even Clough, uh, Clough to have been the more sort of progressive manager and, and Revy to be the old school one, when really I don't think that's quite the way around it. It was. And I think that gets lost in, in the narrative a little bit because he, he slips into this sort of paranoia towards the end. And you know, he did the, he did the, there was a thought to be a curse at Elland Road. So he, he brought in some um, mystic woman to, I think she urinated on the corner flags or something like that, um, to try and break this curse. So he, 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 he was like ultimately really quite scientific in his approach, but then towards the end, he's sort of trying anything he can to, to get his club to, to perform better. And despite the fact that they had the success under Revy, it was never quite the success that they, 
that they wanted. They never really hit the levels that, that they probably should have done, given the team that they had. In terms of Bielsa's move to Leeds United, obviously, once it was sort of arranged, there, there was the, the process of going through and proving to the, mm. the FA, the, the extraordinary talent route, I believe it's called <laughs> something along those lines, which must have been fascinating given who he was uh, presenting to. But the, the, the beginnings of that move, I mean, it was a, it was a signing, a hiring that, that caught everybody by surprise. Um, for several reasons, I think partly because, you know, Leeds is a championship club, irrespective of um, it, its history and its potential for, you know, success, financial clout and all the rest of it. But also because Bielsa's recent history was perhaps the most contentious of, I mean, you know, he's, he's a man, we, we, we've done a series of videos, this podcast will be going out in amongst those videos in, in a few weeks time. But you know, Bielsa is somebody whose who's influence doesn't match the number of titles he's won. You know, uh, a couple of things with New Old Boys, uh, the gold with uh, Argentina in the Olympics. But otherwise, you know, it's, it's been a tale of kind of almost but not quite. Yeah. Except towards the end where, you know, Marseille lasted two, three games into the next season. Then there was, you know, Lazio, Lille. So he'd kind of fallen off the radar a little bit as a coach in his own right, rather than as an influence. So where did that, where did that signing come from? It was, it, was it just an inspired move by the, the Leeds ownership? Yeah, I think as far as I can tell that, that move is uh, catalyzed by Victor Orta, the director of football. Um, so Victor Orta and uh, Angus Kinnear, who's the CEO head over to Argentina and, and they, they somehow machinate this move. Um, after quite a while, you know, they were over in they were over in Argentina for for a couple of weeks, even in the end, ten days at least. Um, and Bielsa was very sl- not slow, but he was very considered in signing the contract in the end. Um, although they they've they've come out in, on record and said, you know, he, he he wasn't really that interested in in the terms and conditions w- with respect to pay and stuff like that. It's all it's all making sure he had the right conditions that he thought he could do well with um, the, the club. Um, in terms of why the club thought they, why the club wanted to get him, I think it was just a, it was a, a, a posturing move that um, indicates that they 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 had got fed up of trying to buy their way out of uh, of the championship um, to a degree. Now I say that with a caveat, which is that Radrizzani had only had one season as owner of the club, but he'd been around when Chilino, Massimo Chilino, was there before, and the, the the whole Leeds narrative of of like being almost there but not quite. I think that that actually sh- the the real cause of that comes from the fact that the club have never really had a long term strategy. They've always tried to just sort things out short term as short short term as so throw money out in some way. And this move for me is the logical conclusion of that process, which is well we've tried spending money to bring in players. Why not try spending the money to bring in a good manager and seeing it if spending the same money that you might spend on players on one person who can actually bring the level of the club up to a, um, a little bit higher in general and see if that works as well. So for me, that's the end of that process. And so the real interesting question with Bielsa is what happens if he fails? Um, what's the next step that the club has to do um, in, terms of their, in terms of their model? Do they, are they just going to give up? Are they going to move away? Is Radritzani going to say, I can't afford this? It's not proving to be the useful PR tool for my, for my um, broadcasting company that I thought it was. So. I mean, in terms of failure... Yeah, yeah. We we should have said possibly at the outset you are a Leeds United fan, hmm. um, which which itself 
poses interesting questions about writing a, a book on this topic, which we'll we'll come to later on. But I think it it's an interesting question. What is success or failure this season? I mean, most people, even after Bielsa had been appointed, still saw Leeds probably as a mid-table side. Um, I think one of the things that is interesting about Leeds this season is that I suppose, well, in terms of things like finishing, maybe they, they've underperformed. It's also fair to say that Bielsa has got a lot from a squad that is maybe now greater than the sum of its parts. You know, you don't, you don't look at that side and, I mean, your, your most creative player is 34 years old. Um, there are players in there who've kind of been, you know, good, solid professionals for their whole career. And wouldn't necessarily leap out as being a group of players that would not only embrace but also succeed playing this particular style of football. So, you know, is at this point, it's looking very much like Leeds will be contesting the playoffs, potentially against Derby, which could be very funny for <laughs> obvious reasons. You know, is that failure? Is is promotion the only measure of success? Is this a longer term project? What what do you as a fan feel? And also, what's the inference that you're getting out of what the club's saying? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, in terms of in terms of the fans, and I think this is something that Bielsa himself would would consider to be um, the measure of success. He he comes out and and he recognises that a football club is about the fans to a to a large degree. Even even the extent to which he'll, he'll come out and say, you know, in this world in in this world where where money is 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 everything in football. Um, you still have to care about the fans because without the fans, that that money disappears. So if you if you aren't p- producing um, entertaining football for the fans, then then eventually the, the clubs will just die out. So he, for him, the, the reason why he comes to a place like Leeds, I think the answer to that question has something to do with the place itself, the locale, the the community, how how he fits in. He he fits in well, and the fans love him. Um, and I don't think there's one thing I've noticed in the last couple of weeks, even when we've gone through, um, I suppose, a sort of mini collapse. The fans are not blaming Bielsa at all. There's a realisation by the fans that, one, this has been the most enjoyable football um, season for, for the majority of them since, since the Champions League seasons, if they're, if they're old enough to remember those. Um, and, and two, there's a recognition that, as you said, he has got more out of this side than, than they think any other manager would have done. Um, so there's, I don't think there's any danger that... that he, the fans don't consider this season successful. At the same time, we had a game against Wigan. That we had four games, which if we won, we would go to the Premier League. First one was against Wigan. Had their four four points away from home, coming to Elland Road, go down to ten men after fifteen minutes, concede a pe- concede a penalty. We miss the penalty, but then we score about two minutes later, one nil up. Right? You think here you go. This this is fine, and we end up losing that game two one. Um, and I think that it's the nature of that of the collapse in particular that that is quite worrying. And there's been there's been stuff coming out from Bielsa saying that he's just struggling to control his squad emotionally at the moment. And I wonder whether or not that comes from what you said about you know a lot of these are sort of solid career professionals who have never been in this situation before, uh, or we've got youngsters coming through. We have a huge amount of youngsters. So we've got Jack Harrison um, as as someone who struck me watching the games recently as someone who's been overawed by the pressure. Jack Clark came on yesterday um, against uh, Brentford and he, he had a virus um, about a month ago. So I'm not sure how much of it's virus induced and whether or not he's still carrying the after effects of that. But 
he looked a shadow of his of his former self as well. And it's it's not that it's not that these players look exhausted. It's that they look emotionally shot to a certain extent. It's an inability to deal with the pressure. So, in in order to answer, um, yeah, the, the question about whether or not he's been successful, I think, yeah, of course, I don't think there's anyone who doubts it within within the the fan base. Uh, the club, I'm not so sure about, but the club are still um, running this line that well, we'll be in the Premier League next season. So I don't know what anyone's worrying about. Um, if if he doesn't get into the Premier League. I suppose then it'll be the summer that we'll really have a good a good grasp on how the club is going to deal with it because I think they have a, a year plus a year contract with him, so the the chance to re-sign based on the club's uh, uh, whatever the club decides. So it's got nothing to do with um, uh, Bielsa per se. I mean, obviously he could pull out of it if he wanted to, um, but I think they would consider it successful. When we've got thirty four thousand fans week in week out now, um, up from like pushing 30 at the beginning of the season. So we're, it's absolutely ran-backed every week. The, 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 there is a good sense of, uh, of, of the club going somewhere. But again, it comes back to that short-termism. Like if, it's all well and good to have this, this plan, this project, but if Bielsa leaves at the end of this season, like who, who do you get in? And, and how, do you, how, how is there any sort of continuity with what's gone before? What about just, Sam Pauli? <laughs> <laughs> just work your way through all of the perceived hipster coaches. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but for me, that's, that's the, the long and short of it, is that it's, it's all well and good getting someone like Bielsa in. It's been great experience, but I, I think all of us fans are aware of the fact that this is a sort of like dream scenario. And it, if it doesn't pay off, then, then it, we'll be back to where we were before in many respects. And, even even if we go up, say we go up, and I can't see this squad doing particularly well in the Premier League. So um, you you can't just sort of I don't know. I don't. We we if anything, we will be a sort of a Crystal Palace or a Bournemouth who who sort of yo yo for a bit to get to get solidity. And I'm not entirely sure that that's quite as romantic as this idea of Bielsa, because I think a lot of fans think we get to the Premier League and we become a solid top four side immediately, which is. Ridiculous. <laughs> Which is wishful thinking. Yeah. But then I think, you know, it's, it's one of those interesting things that, that you've sort of um, referred to it in passing before, you know, the suddenly Leeds has become exciting again and, and vibrant and tactically interesting and a club that is being talked about in glowing terms. And certainly, you know, some of the, I'd say as somebody who watches a lot of football, you know, the, the best games this season of any football that I've watched have either involved Leeds United or Norwich. Um, I think the best football being played in England at the moment is being played in the Championship with reference to who those players are and so on. You know, mm. it's a lot easier to do it if you're Man City. Um, but there is something very Leeds in that. <laughs> There's something very Leeds in the idea of being presented with this kind of almost mythically charming scenario and then falling short. And, and that, it, you know, it would be the most Leeds thing in the world to play amongst some of the best football in the country and still fail, you know, getting, getting knocked out by Derby <laughs> in the playoffs. <laughs> and then, you know, where do we all go from there? It, it feels like it sort of almost fits yeah, which and, uh, must be a worry. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and uh, you know, the fan base now—it's been what fifteen years since we were in the Premier League. The fan base now have sort of written that narrative into the club's DNA, and I find it so frustrating. Someone who writes—I write 
quite regularly. I've got a weekly column at the moment in Football Whispers where I'm writing um, analytical and tactical pieces on on Leeds United and, it, and, and more so than any other club I think I've written that sort of stuff on. You, you sort of get this, it, it very quickly descends into sort of like mysticism and, mm. and, and you kind of think, people just, people just think, you know, this is, what's the point of, what's, about, what's the point of thinking about this rationally because the only solution to this, this problem is going to be we will fall short at the end because we are Leeds. And so it becomes very, very hard, I think, to talk about, interestingly, about Leeds tactically. Because so much of the fan base just want to be like, well, this is Leeds. We are Leeds. This is what we do. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think maybe maybe hiring Bielsa as a character was therefore a, a masterstroke. Yeah. Well, I think so. Feeding into that sort of yeah. sense of uh, well, because there is something mystical about Bielsa. I think this is perhaps a nice segue into yeah. into the the idea of him as a as a character because. I know from reading your uh, email, what would you call it? Email out? Newsletter. 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 Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that you're interrogating is, is this idea of, of the myth of, of Bielsa, the, the, the media presentation, um, you know, and obviously this is a man who in his past has uh, behaved in relatively extreme ways or is reported to have done, you know, I'll chop my finger off if we get a win, you know, sending youth players up into the trees to scout the opposition. And there's an intensity there that could perhaps border on mania at times. And yet this nickname, El Loco, the madman, which he utterly rejects and, and is, you know, very, very against um, for a variety of reasons, I think, not least because it's, it's actually just a pejorative. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a serious term that shouldn't be used jokingly. Um, so that Bielsa, you know, is, is how, how do we separate? Firstly, how do we separate Bielsa, the actuality from Bielsa, the, the media creation? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in the first, the first chapter of the book is all about language, which sounds really kind of, again, esoteric. Um, but for me, Bielsa is, is quite unique in the sense that he, he clearly cares about like exactitude with language. He wants to Express his ideas with with clarity. He wants to transmit his ideas to the players, um, and he sees that as being part of uh, and parcel of what it means to be a good coach. And but a lot of people jump on that and they say, you know, they they sort of see him as this sort of architect te- uh, technician, this, this sort of tactician who who really understands the game. But at the same time, one 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 of the really important aspects of of Bielsa's um, self conception as a coach is this notion of communication in in, in an emotional sense. So one of the reasons I, I argue that he uses Salam Lamrani as his translator, um, who is a, a Frenchman, so he's translating from well, Spanish to English, English to Spanish. He's a Frenchman, and he's, he's not always the best translator. So I've always kind of wondered why, why would someone, because the standard line is, well, Bielsa is really careful to use the right words when he's talking because he wants to transmit the, these ideas. Um, why would he then use a translator who, who is not necessarily the best at, um, uh, transmitting that that sort of exactitude, and I think it's I think it's because with with the players, he's more concerned that he does have that emotional transmission. So he he sees Salam Lamarani as someone who can um, represent his own emotional um, sense of transmission. How do you get the players up for for playing? Well, you get a translator who's going to be able to mirror the same sort of um, uh, uh, I guess emotional uh, ideas as he is doing. So. 
and and the reason why why that for me that's that's so important is because um I think a lot of people consider Bielsa to be quite um well, they can't really even conceive of the fact that you 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 everything you see of this guy is generally not emotional right even on the sidelines and yesterday at um at Brentford at Griffin Park was the first time I'd seen Bielsa so vociferous on the sidelines and I think that's clearly because he feels as though he is he is struggling to get the the players to respond emotionally um but usually he 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 comes across as being the the exact opposite of someone who might care about emotions now if you watch him in a training session it's it's the complete opposite he's just he's um he's running around shouting at the screaming at the players generally swear words just trying to get them to perform better you know um and so in answering the question like who is the like Bielsa the actuality versus who is this projected Bielsa it's it's really tough because I think he's aware of the fact that what his role is, is, is to project himself in a certain way to his players, but also to the media and to the media in a different way. Mm. Um, so he realizes as well, and there's plenty of places where he says this, you know, language is really important for him as a coach. You transmit your tactical ideas, you transmit emotional ideas, but at the same time, you've got to recognize that the media are out there and they're using language in their own way. And they're trying just to tell stories and those stories often will go against the, the sort of ideas that you want your players to have, uh, the, the fans to have, um, and the general public. So between those sort of three nodal points, it's actually very, very difficult to come to some kind of answer as to what Bielsa is, is, is really like. Um, and that's for me, what, that, that, that's what I'm negotiating as I write the book. How do you, how do you actually, and I, I, I have to be fully aware as a journalist that you know, you, when you're writing about someone like that, you feel as though, you know, if I sat down with him, we'd be the best of pals. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all because as a journalist, he recognises that I have to, uh, to a certain extent, spin a narrative. Uh, and so I think he, he therefore has that sort of a little bit of a standoffish nature. Whereas you see him with kids when he gets off the, the, the team coach and he hands out lollipops to them when he's, because it's something that happens a lot in, when it happened a lot to him when he was growing up in Argentina. So I can't remember what your original question was, but when, it, when you're starting to talk about who Bielsa the man is, you always have to situate it within mm. that, that prior context. And I, I suppose, I mean, I, I think that's a very, a very interesting and, and fulsome answer, out of which I suppose the question presents itself. If you, if you look at, at media coverage increasingly, I would say particularly to my mind in the last 10 years or so, where this concept of narrative within the media of, of painting the story around the story where, you know, your, your, your primary material, if you're covering football is, is 90 minutes effectively like a match report. And, and as layers have been added to that, and particularly with uh, coaches, um, this sense of the coach as an interesting individual. I mean, there, you know, there are forerunners to this and we've talked about two of them already, Clough and Reeve. Uh, Revy, Revy, Revy. I say Revy. Revy. Okay. Well, happy to be corrected. You would know. No, I'm happy to be corrected. Um, And it 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 seems to me that 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 someone particularly like uh, Guardiola has has had a massive part in this. And of course, you know, if you have your uh, I I was I was reading a book last night which was talking about uh, conceptions of storytelling and how in the kind of hero's narrative that that the hero. Uh, you know, confronts a world in which he feels he needs to change something or something happens to him and there's this tension and uh, obviously he adopts positional play. And then he goes to find his mentor and there is this famous pilgrimage and it is, 
it is literally described as a pilgrimage. And I do find it fascinating that even as I, even as I was writing scripts about Bielsa, my language was tending toward the metaphysical. I was talking about disciples and pilgrimages and, and so on. And that's as, as somebody who is quite aware of, of these, you know, semantic, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the, Tendencies? The, yeah, but, but also the, the, the importance of, of talking about people in this kind of way. And obviously, you know, Bielsa becomes this figure to whom the greatest modern coach, as many would see it, goes to, to kind of sit and learn and, you know, they end up moving chairs around and whatever it is they do. But, and what, what, you, what you've just said in your answer is that, that some of that is perhaps quite knowingly fostered by Bielsa, which I, I find very plausible, but I also find at odds perhaps with, again, this narrative that's presented of him as being incredibly obsessive about football to the point of basically forgetting that anything outside of it exists. Uh, and there are numerous stories about him, you know, going on holiday and roping his father-in-law in to help him with pre-match analysis and all of these different things. It, it seems to me there's a degree of calculation and awareness of the externalities that is at odds with this presentation of him as being so focused on one thing. Yeah, my response to that would be that all too often within the media, we look at Bielsa and when we think of like, how is he presenting himself? We think how he's presenting himself to us. Whereas the majority of a football manager's life in terms of self-presentation is done with his players. And for, for me, all of the self-knowing stuff is done in the face of the media. He's aware of what the media does. Um, he is aware of how he can respond to that. And he is aware how he can actually play the media game as well. And my section in language as, as well talks about how he uses Salam Lamrani so that he can coexist within two spaces at once. He can remain himself. He can remain him and, and say... And, and, and be open and, and express ideas and, and, and feel as though he is being um, responsible to his fan base. But at the same time, he can use Salam Lamrani to, to play the media game a little bit as well. So that buffer um, is, is played out there. And the, 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 the book itself, the subtitle is Between, between the Lines. And the, and the underlying argument that I have is that in so many areas, one, there's a, an internal coherence to Bielsa's life. Everything he, everything he does makes sense with respect to whatever area you're looking at. So if you, if you want to know about his politics and you know a bit about his tactics, you shouldn't be surprised when you can say, actually, there's a sense in which, you know, the, think, the way that he thinks about how football should be is also kind of how he thinks the way that like, we should live in the world. And, and in simple terms, what is that? Uh, I, well, I think it's, it's, it's this notion of living in this world, which is... Um, coherent but but also um reciprocal so there's a, there's a for me a certain sense of reciprocity you you when you when it comes to his the way that he plays football yes there's a responsibility to the fans there's a responsibility for the for the, the, the people at the bottom of organizations just as much as there are at the top and so he takes that into his tactics and the for me the baseline of his tactics is we play this way as a team and once we've sorted this out then we can allow creativity we can we can allow this sort of um i i, I should have checked this before i came in but the, there's a there's a there's a spanish word that he uses um repetizione yeah repetition something like that, that yeah. yeah um and and i find that that idea like fascinating because for me that's that is the nub of his of his tactical um approach which is which isn't it's not um 
and and Jonathan Wilson talks about this quite well. In- yeah, Wilson defines it as as um, essentially like sight reading a piece of music, yeah, but for the first time. So there is there is something which is almost improvised to it, but it's not improvisation because you're you're reacting to something that that exists yeah. as a predetermined thing. Yeah, and I think classical music is a great way of talking about that because there's always a sense in classical music that you have that you have. The, the notes in front of you, you have the notation, you have the structure, everything is there. You could sit down and play that as it is written. Mm. But there's an understanding, I think, within the, uh, the classical music that, that that representation that you have on the pages is, is, is never the final goal. You're not trying to get to that. That is um, a sort of a pathway to get to where you want the music to be. And I think for, 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 for um, Bielsa, that is the way that he thinks about tactics. He has all of these um, structural approaches. They run all of these, and you'll see it on Twitter. Like loads of it's coming out now. They'll be like, "Oh, look, Leeds have scored a goal that was similar to the way that Marseille scored a goal in 2015 or something." And and the reason for that is because they do they run through uh, repetitions all the time. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that he's someone like Antonio Conte, for whom something like repetition is 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 almost a slavish devotion. Yeah. It's that as soon as you've got these things down, only then can you start being creative. You're creative within a very set. Um, framework of circumstances. So you're not just going to throw out the best players and say, go and do something here. You're saying, yeah, do the things that you do, but within this, within this framework of movement. It, it's uh, having just finished a script on, on Leeds tactics that they're an absolute bugger to write about because yeah. it, there's a lure of, like you say, kind of certain, certain approaches, certain triggers are absolutely consistent. Mm. And then within that, there is almost infinite variety. Yep. So you can kind of say, well, this is going to happen. But then what happens after that could be one of such an enormous number of different things yep. that it becomes really quite hard to, to kind of pin down. I think what you're saying about classical music is interesting. Have you, <laughs> have you come across an Amazon Prime series called Mozart in the Jungle? I haven't, no. So there's um, Gabriel Garcia Bernal plays a conductor who is who's with the New York... Philharmonic, Metropolitan, some New York orchestra. And, uh, and he's always talking about playing with the blood. You have to play with the blood. You have to play with the blood. And, and he, that, that sense, exactly like you say, of, of on the one hand having, you know, an orchestra has a score and the score has been written by somebody else. That's fine. That's a bit of a distinction. But, you know, you, you can all follow what you're supposed to be doing because you're all good at playing your respective instruments. But then the struggle at that point becomes the transmission of effectively an artistic vision and yeah. interpretation by the conductor who knows what he wants it to sound like, but can't always get that across. And, and this incredible tension and frustration, I think, sometimes that comes through. And, you know, obviously there's a sort of a, a South American or Central American thing going on there, but, you know, this the battle becomes one of communication. And, and I think that's a really key point with, with, with teams that Bielsa has coached. You know, you can see these, these systematic patterns. And yeah, I think sometimes we can be very, very hard on professional footballers. You know, they, they are within what they do, extremely intelligent. Otherwise they wouldn't mm. be top flight professional footballers mm. or, or championship professional footballers. So they get it and you can probably explain to them. And, you know, the transformation of certain players under Bielsa is testament to the fact that if you ask them what to do, they are able to do it. But then how do you communicate beyond that? How do you move beyond the, this is the program yeah. into the, this is the, 
this is the bit that that get this is playing with the blood this is that passion that interpretation and and maybe that's what's happening now yeah, for Leeds no, is that bit isn't working no i think that's that's a really good way of putting it and i think it does it, it comes it's like anything right when you when you when you go into the neuroscience of it there is you're always between that 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 sort of for, fundamental stage where you're you're trying to ingrain ideas into players in such a way that they don't think about it um, and you, you sort of make them, you make them repeat and repeat and repeat. And the repetition gets to a point where those players, those players, and I see it now, I watch it, them and they're, they're doing things automatically. They just, they don't need to think about them. But as you said, there's, it never sort of ends there. There's always that le- level on top of it when, as soon as you start thinking, as soon as it becomes difficult and you start thinking, how is it that we, we do this stuff normally? Like normally it feels so easy. Mm. Um, and then as soon as you raise it to the level of self-awareness, then you get to this point where you're like, I can't, I, we, it doesn't feel easy anymore. So I, I think that's, a, that's a, probably what's going on right now is the sense that when you have so much of it being, and I was, I was talking to, I went to the game yesterday with Nathan Clark, um, the, the top, Tottenham Tactics guy, and we, I was talking to him about it. It feels as though Bielsa teams are so um, organic in the sense that everyone has to do their thing right. And, and that's brilliant because like you said, you end up with this, this amazing sort of like inversion where, where you actually end up with a, a product that is better, greater than the sum of its parts. The problem is, is that as soon as one or two people aren't functioning correctly in that, in that sort of micro sim, symbiosis of, of football, which is why it's great to watch Bielsa teams because it's like, they're like murmurations when the players are moving. It's like when you're watching sparrows and, and starlings fly around at night. That's, that's how it feels. As soon as, that, as soon as you lose that capacity, then, then everything goes. And so you go very quickly from like almost perfection for, for, as a football fan looking at the side to, to just being like, I don't understand why everything has collapsed to the, to, to the level that it has. That, that sort of entropy happens so quickly. I think that uh, what you say about pressure there is, is interesting. And it was, it was something that I was going to interject with when we were talking about this a little while ago, that, that whether the pressure on those players is less the pressure of potentially winning promotion to the Premier League and more the accretion of the pressure of playing at a certain level. And that, that actually that there, there comes a moment where, you know, if you're particularly, say, like, you know, Jack Harrison, one of these younger players, um, you start to doubt your ability to be able to continue to do those things where, where the, the buffer of, I, I play the bass guitar and, and have done for years and years and years and have recently started playing it much more regularly again. And, and there are riffs that I'll be absolutely fine with until I start to think about it. And then all of a sudden my fingers stop working because yeah. it works as a, almost a kind of an intuitive um, movement that they just do what they're supposed to do. And then I interpose myself, my conscious thought process into that, and I, you know, I can't do it anymore. And I wonder if that's something with, you know, Bielsa, Bielsa's never really, I'd say, apart from Argentina, coached a really good side, you know, and even the, even the athletic Bilbao side that reached the Copa del Rey final, reached the, UEFA, uh, the Europa League final, you know, they finished La Liga in 10th. Yeah. They were as low as... 19th, I think, at one point, you know, that this was not a great team. And is there this moment suddenly where they think, yeah, Jesus, this is us doing it, and they all fall apart? 
Yeah, no, I think there's a few responses to that. One of them, one of which is I think that he maybe conflates emotion and with pressure. So I think they're under a huge amount of emotional stress, even from the off, when there's no actually not really that much pressure on them. So you see them come out of the blocks really quickly in in the championship, which is um, which is fine. But then why is it then towards the end of the season it becomes difficult? And I think that may simply be the case that when you rely so much on emotional responses early on in the season, when that pressure comes in on top of that, um, that there can come that, that sort of exhaustion, perhaps even like an emotional exhaustion. Or perhaps he just doesn't have another gear himself to go right. to in order to inspire yeah, that. I think that's true. And, and so you see in this first, his first season at Newell's, um, so in the Argentinian divisions, they, they, they split the division in two halves and you have the, the Apertura, which is the opening half and the Clausura, which is the, the closing half. And it, the first season that he was at Newell's, they comfortably won the, the Apertura and they completely bombed in the in Clausura, um, which is where I think the, that's the, the beginning of, of, the, of the narrative of, of burnout begins. Uh, obviously, the, the athletic club seasons um, add to that a little bit as well, this notion that, oh, actually, at the end, Bielsa's size are, are disappointing. Um, but they, they then go on and win the, um, they, get, they go and win the, the game between the, the winner of the first half and the second half of the season in the first season at Newell's. So my heart is holding on to that as, as this is a sort of brilliant, it's a sort of brilliant um, metaphor for what's happened at Leeds, right? I had a great first half of the season, dropped off in the second half of the season, but maybe, just maybe in the defining match at the end of the season, it will come through. Um, I was going to say something else. What was I going to say? Um, no, you, you, you carry on and I'll have to think I'll jump, jump back in. Well, if we, if we go to the sort of the end of the season uh, and it, 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 it ties quite neatly in because of this potential playoff meeting with, with Derby. Um, and as I say, you know, this, this podcast will come out at a slightly awkward time in terms of the, the teleology of the season. But, you know, um, one of the big instances of Bielsa meeting the media this season was, let's call it what everyone else called it, Spygate. Um, I know your, your face. Um, <laughs> I just find li- it for listeners. John is not amused <laughs> by this term. Everyone, everyone thought that that was going to be, everyone was like, oh, you know, it's great for the book. It's really good to have something like Spygate. And f- for me, Spygate was never anything that interesting. Um, but, and, and okay, we can get onto that in okay. a second. I, I suppose my question there is, you know, journalists on Twitter, uh, which is, basically the place that I interact with journalists, largely being a, you know, not somebody who goes to press boxes and so on. Um, the, they were reaching orgasmic levels <laughs> of excitement around particularly the press conference that then turned mm-hmm. into the greatest PowerPoint presentation of all time. Um, <laughs> you know, how much was, I, I'm asking you to speculate on the unspeculatable really but oh, I'm happy to do how much yeah <laughs> how much of that do you think was was a very very kind of canny measured response from Bielsa or or to what extent maybe was it was it just a kind of well you know this is what I do this is what I've always done yeah. Yeah. and 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 my answer to you is to just do more of it because I really don't get the point yeah so firstly like on the context of like journalism in general um I, I won't mention any names, but certain certain mainstream outlets have sent journalists along to Leeds games maybe two or three times, and they ask questions about burnout. Um, and Marcelo Bielsa himself got quite annoyed at one of these questions. Um, and I suspect it's because he is 
he know he keeps an eye on who's in the press box. So if someone from the mainstream media who hasn't been there before drops in uh, and asks him a question about burnout, he's probably just he's probably just thinking like how how can I respond to this when you clearly haven't cared about the whole season until this moment? You're going to fly in, ask this question that everyone presumably asks him at some point in the season and then fly out again and then not turn up again and, until right now, which is right at the end of the season when, uh, that when, the, when the mainstream um, attendance in Leeds press box is, is, is again going through the roof. So I think th- there's, there's a sense in which the reason why that sort of story becomes big is because the, the media picture, presentation of Bielsa is actually quite lazy. Um, and this is something that I've said a lot in the stuff that I've written. Even, even that, so, so I wrote the piece for the eye paper on, on the notion of burnout. And people say, oh, that's a really great piece. And I'm like, all I've, literally all I've done is I've gone through, looked at the season, seen where there could be, uh, it's really basic journalism. It's not, it's not rocket science, but that just doesn't get done. Um, and I think it's because there is this, they want to buy into this, this, the sort of esoteric, mystical um, Bielsa. Um, so, so for me, the, the, spy, the whole Spygate incident comes out in, the, in, in, in that sense. Um, it's thrown out because they're like, oh, look, here's Bielsa doing what Bielsa does. Whereas for me, actually, if you know much about Bielsa's life, if you've read much about it, it, it makes a huge amount of sense what, what happened there. Um, the, one of the things that I found really, really interesting is, is just the way that Bielsa exists within the world, how he like cognitively engages with the world. Um, and I've had a, a huge amount of, of people contact me saying, uh, I've been diagnosed autistic th- through the NHS or whatever. And a lot of the things that Bielsa does strikes me as sorts of things that I do. Um, one of those things is um, a, an inability to conceive of, of why you might try to deceive someone. Um, so this ab- an inability to maybe lie to people or, or to try and trick people or to deceive people, that, that, that seems to be, and, and autism obviously com- that comes with a caveat, autism is a, is a very difficult um, phenomenon to explain, to understand, to diagnose. Um, and I would be the last person in the world who would want to just sort of slap this label on him. But the thing that really interested me about, about the way that Bielsa dealt with Spygate was the fact that what seemed to annoy him was the fact that people assumed that he had knowingly broken the rules and was trying to get an edge on people, which is why he, came, he comes out and he's very clear to say, look, this is all to do with my own like, anxieties. Um, if I, if I lose a game and I feel as though I could have done more to win a game, that, that's going to hang heavy on me. Um, and I think that was, that was the, 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 his immediate response. But then when, when you started getting all of this moralizing by various members of, of various um, media outlets saying, you know, the, the sort of standard lines of, oh, you know, well, this is what's going to happen if you let foreign people come in and besmirch the English game. Um, I think the, the reason why he called that press conference and the reason why it went the way that he did it, makes entire sense because he, he wants to come across and say, look, this is, I'm going to be open with you and honest with you. I've got no reason to deceive you because I'm not, I'm willing to come out here and basically give you a lecture on how to beat Frank Lampard's Derby County. So in many respects for me, that sort of, that sort of instance kind of, I find quite frustrating because it's people treat it as a, as a sort of outlier and being like, well, this is why we love Bielsa because he does this when really actually he behaved in that scenario exactly how I would have expected him uh, to behave. Um, and so for me, it's almost like back engineering things the wrong way around. If you want to know what Bielsa's like, take the time and effort to, to find out. Yeah, he's a difficult character. He is, he's, he, there is a depth there. There is an ambiguity there as well. 
Um, but he, he's way more than just some some madman who who and and this is maybe a good place to talk about the El Loco stuff that you mentioned before. Um, because for me, I think the frustration he he has with that nickname is that all he sees himself doing is what he sees as being responsible management. If you if you are managing a club, you have to do everything in your power to win. Um, and for him, that involves just making sure you're um, just prepared to the minutest level. And so when people come out and say, oh, this guy's a nutter because he, this is how he treats football management, he gets quite frustrated because for him, it's not, it's not, it's not um, some kind of admonition of like being, not being, a, having typical or not being neurotypical. It's, for him, it's just, what, why would you not do it this way? Why, it, surely the issue here is with all other managers who don't do it this way. Um, so I think the fact that what actually should be maybe viewed as him going above and beyond what a lot of other managers do becomes a sort of outlier where they're like, he's the weird one. When really I think he sees it the other way around. I'm just, I'm the only really responsible one. I'd also add to that, and I, I agree entirely with what you've said, that it's a, it's a reflection of how football generally is viewed as a profession. Um, because if you were a corporate lawyer specializing in contract negotiations and had to work 18 hour days every day for six months to get a big merger and acquisition through, no one would bat an eyelid. I mean, your partner might be a bit pissed off, but <laughs> there, there is a, a degree to which people accept that in certain professional, in inverted commas, professions, um, incredible focus, single-mindedness, uh, the exclusion of anything even approaching leisure time in order to get mm. the job done is seen as praiseworthy, really, nowadays. Yeah. You know, this is why people send emails at, at five o'clock in the morning and, and, you know, to have their workouts and their spirulina shakes at four. For some reason, within the context of sport, that's actually seen as entirely aberrant. And I, I feel probably has a lot to do with the both the kind of the leisure aspect of sport the fact that sport in every conceivable sense is now as much a multi-billion pound enterprise as any other but but has its roots in something else and also potentially a reflection of of some sort of sense of class that you know sport is still really the preserve of which of course you know Beelze Bucks coming from the family that he does you know his his sister's a local politician his brother i think was similarly a minister in, in in a government so you know he's he is not working class but you know football is working class though that those people should just sort of treat it like yeah. a glorified hobby yeah that's really interesting because again i talk about this in the in in the book i talk about the fact and, and i'm i'm probably trying to look for ambiguities too much but you know you mentioned his family yeah he, he his, his grandparents basically are rosario aristocracy um but his mum comes from, from a poor area in Cordoba uh, and has to sort of pull herself up by her bootstraps to become a history teacher. And what I find interesting about Bielsa is if you compare him to the rest of his family, he, is, he, he appears quite different in that regard. And for me, that, that difference is that he does come from this sort of high culture, Argentinian, um, I, I guess, aristocracy, as I've said. But he's, he, he very quickly falls into the, into the sort of world of football. Um, and so again, you get him sort of sitting between the lines. He he comes from a family where you can have long dinner conversations about Peronism, uh, or, or you can talk about Chilean cinema or something like that. And, and that conversation is had. But he's also used to sitting around uh, meal tables with footballers and, and talking about the things that footballers have too. So 
so much of what I think is interesting about Bielsa is that he does inhabit like multifarious worlds. He sits in these interstices between what you might expect. And, and it's not that he then says, well, I'm going to take the good things out of this side and the good things out of this side. I think there's, gen- there's a genuine sense for him that he just sort of wants both worlds at the same time and he, he can't even di- distinguish himself um, between them, which is what was so interesting about what we're talking about tactics. You know, he has that. He, he can see the, the benefits of both ways and, and rather than falling down one side or the other, he is just sitting there um, almost uh, um, looking at the way it is. I'm thinking that there's a... There's an interview he gave, an interview his brother gave, his brother Raphael. So yeah, you said he's a, he's, he was a politician in the Kirchner um, uh, government, uh, but now he sort of works for, he works for a company who is in charge of all of the airports in Argentina. Um, and that's a sort of, it's a government, it's a state subcontract company as far as I understand. So he's still kind of working in sort of socialist um, government position. Uh, he gives this interview with, and his brother is just the most pretentious man ever. It's, it's well worth reading the interview because he talks about, ev- like he's talking about everything. He talks about like high culture. He talks about um, authors. He's talking about, yeah, and Lionel Messi as well. But um, he, describes, he describes Marcelo as a, a literary figure. And he says that he's, he says Marcelo is just battling with fate. If you want to understand Marcelo, you've got to think of him as, as this sort of hero battling with fate. And he knows that the battle is already lost but he still has to fight that battle. Um, and I think that's, like, I think that's actually, regardless of the pretension and the fact that he's clearly squeezing him into his own narrative framework, I think that's a really nice way of looking at, at Bielsa is that there is that sense in which he, he sees the world as being idealistic in a certain sense. We've talked about this with like the tactics. Like there's, there's a way that you should live in the world. There's a way that you can play the best football if you play this way all the time where there's no plan B. We have a plan A because that's how football works. And it's the same thing with his politics to a certain extent. There's a, there's a, there's a way to do politics, um, but there's still, there is still that ability to then have, to have the, the, the freedom to do it. Like as we were talking about with the football, you know, that you, you know what the, the conditions and the lines and the laws of politics are, but within that, there is a freedom to, to sort of do what you can within that framework. Um, and I think that's what I get a lot of the time from, from Bielsa is that there is, there is that framework that he knows how to behave, but often he feels as though, that framework lets him down so or or other people let him down because they don't keep to that framework so i see him as an idealist who regrets his idealism a a lot you know um i think that's a really good way of of looking at it and i think when you get you get to scenarios like this where we'll get to the end of the season and Leeds may not be promoted i think he will be that will be the burden that he will bear he'll be like i did everything i could to make this this the, the the model of football work and it hasn't worked and he'll be, I, I don't know whether or not he, he aims that disappointment at himself for believing that that is the case or whether or not he, he looks at it elsewhere and thinks if only people had, had really um, inhabited that framework as, as much as they could. Do you think, you know, I, there, is, there is absolutely no reason to sniff at a gold medal in the Olympics mm. and, and, uh, and winning something with, with Newell's, but those in the kind of Bielsa school have gone on to, you know, Gallardo is already the joint most successful River Plate manager of all time. Uh, okay, Pochettino I find interesting because actually he hasn't won anything. In some ways he is most like Bielsa in that regard. But generally speaking, you know, Tata Martino and the, 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 the list is Guardiola if you include him as a true Bielsa, which I kind of don't yeah. actually, but... It's an interesting question in itself, right? How do you consider legacy when it comes to... 
management? Well, I mean, yes. And I, I think that may be, may be something that we could d- discuss at another point on another podcast, because I think there's a whole, you know, this is something we were talking to Jonathan Wilson about last time as well with, you know, sort of the South German school and and why that subject of, of legacy is of interest to some and, and kind of irrelevant to others, which I think is a fascinating question. But to go back to Bielsa, maybe there's this, I, I don't want to say I pick it up, but this sense like his brother said in the interview, you know, he knows he's already lost. That, that in, in his battle to, to square the circle, to find the third way between two opposing forms of, of an approach to football, between different worldviews, whatever it is, it, it, it almost suits him better in some way not to succeed. But those of his followers who are able to take a step back from that position and temper that with a degree of pragmatism go on to reap the benefits. And, and he's the one who, and, and I know this massively, massively plays into the idea of him as some sort of mystical outlier. You know, he's John the Baptist to Pep Guardiola's <laughs> Jesus. But I think there's something in that maybe. Yeah, no, I do. I, I agree. And I think, you know, you know, the argument that people always have, which is, oh, I'd, I'd like to see Pep Guardiola manage Barnsley or something, and then we'll see how good a manager is. You want that, watch Bielsa at least, because that's what it is. That, I, I, I firmly believe that that is, that is exactly what you'd see if, if, if Guardiola managed at a, at a club like Leeds. Um, and, and so the, the, for me, I think it's a, a brilliant way of you putting it that he has to manage these clubs to a certain extent. But the motivation for that, for me, comes from the fact that he that there has to be a sense that he feels as though he's doing something important for the people of that mm. community, um, which I don't think his followers necessarily buy into so much. So I don't think Pep Guardiola went to, for example, Bayern because he felt as though the people of Munich needed some kind of, some kind of moral like uh, uptick. I, I kind of, that's why personally speaking, I, I would feel, I mean, Sampaoli is probably the most kind of overt Bielsa follower, but I, I'd say the one who to me feels most like him is Pochettino, because I think Pochettino does have a sense of, you know, the fact that he's, he's running with the Spurs project in spite of a lot of, yeah, in no. spite of a lack of investment and against, uh, you know, not, not necessarily a bad backdrop, you know, stadium rebuilding and, and, and it, or not rebuilding, but the creation of a new stadium is great. Yeah. But there's a huge amount of upheaval there. There's no doubt that he could move to a bigger job. I mean, there probably only are maybe eight jobs that are bigger in the world, but he could get them and he's got an association with yeah. PSG, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there seems to be something in the way that he approaches that job that feels quite Bielsa. Yeah, and let's not forget that Pochettino is, he, he follows Bielsa through his playing career pretty much. Like, I mean... It, He's, he's there at Newell's and, and um, the, he's at Espanyol as well. I mean, obviously that was only a very short period, but um, then you have the Argentinian national team. Mm. And I think, you know, he's, he's the outlier for me precisely because he is the one who genuinely can claim to be a disciple of Bielsa, the others um, less so. I mean, like Tata Martino was only there, um, was only there sort of towards the tail end of his career in Newell's. So... So th- th- there wasn't that sort of formation all the way through his playing career. And I guess Barizo as well was, was, was is maybe a- another uh, 
individual who you could maybe argue that he, but Pochettino, I think he, he is a good example of that because um, the question of winning or losing is one that's always thrown at him as well. And I think there's, it shouldn't be surprising that, that, that the question of, oh, well, what's Poch ever won mm. should be raised. And, you know, Poch is the sort of person that you wouldn't be surprised if, if he left Spurs and they renamed the stadium after him in the same way that they did with Bielsa at Newell's. I found the, the incident with, was it Mike Dean? Uh, in the fixture where Pochettino was clearly oh, yeah, sorry, I think you were talking about Bielsa. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and Pochettino just flat out refused to say what had been said to him. Yeah. And I thought most managers would have at least intimated what was said or, or expressed something. And Pochettino was just like, nope, not saying it. Yeah. Not my place to. And that, again, there was a real... A, a sense of, of morality overriding common sense in some regards. You know, he just didn't feel it was the right thing to do. And irrespective of what punishment, what sanction was going to come his way for doing that, he stuck to his guns. And that, that again, struck me as the sort of response that Bielsa yeah. would have had under those circumstances. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that is because he will have learned how to be a manager under, under Bielsa. The, there are similar examples of this sort of thing happening all the way through the, his time at Newell's and all the way through his time as Argentina manager, where I think he just, he, he, he gets that, that he gets that understanding that I was talking about before, which is you are only, when you think about legacy, you aren't thinking about the media. You're not thinking about what the stories that people will write about you. You're thinking about the concrete things that you leave behind. So for Bielsa, the important things that he's leaving behind is, is a stadium at Newell's Old Boys. It's, it's training facilities at clubs all around the world. Um, it's, it's the, the, the memories that fans have of those seasons. That's for him. That's what legacy is about. And I think Pochettino probably thinks that too. So when it comes to the, when it comes to the question of like, if you, have you been successful? Well, how many trophies have you won? I think neither Pochettino nor Bielsa will, will think of those questions worth asking um, because there's so much more to legacy than, than that. There's a great Guardiola quote along those lines, actually, which is, um, and I can't remember where I read it, but you know, he basically says, you lot, the media, you ask about titles and you ask about what we've won, but, but as far as Bielsa is concerned, that's not what matters. What matters is the players he's influenced yeah. and what those players have then gone on to do. And I, I wonder to what degree you know, Bielsa looks at Gallardo, Barrizzo, Mateus Almeida, you know, all of these guys who make Constantine Galka was another one I found <laughs> who's currently managing in Denmark. Um, but, you know, the, the, the number of his ex-players who have gone on to management careers of varying degrees of success, sure, but that's, that's only natural. Um, you know, does he give any sense that he perceives that to be his legacy? Is his legacy, like you say, that the, the football that he brings to the fans in any given season and the memories thereof? Does he talk about legacy? Because he's quite old now. I mean, he must be, he must be conscious 63. of... 63. 63. Okay, maybe not as... Not as uh, 64. So... No, coming up to 64. He's got a while left if he wants it, but, you know, th there must be some sense of what he's handing on at this point. Yeah, no, of course. I, I, there's, there's a quote that I have at the beginning of like, the, 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 the sort of epithet, epithet for the book is um, there's a quote where he says, I don't expect anyone to write a book about me. But if they do, I hope they focus on my methods. Or I don't think he says, I hope, I think he says, but if they do, they'll 
they will be focused on my, they should be focused on my methods rather than what I want. Um, which is essentially that, that is the, that's the thing that's driving me to write the book about him is why is it that we talk about, why are we talking about what he's not one rather than actually the, the, the way that he sees the world. And I think he doesn't talk, I've not heard him talk about managers. Um, a lot of the time he's, he's quite dismissive of, of those kind of quotes about all of these famous people that he is, because he'll say, well, you know, if you look at the way Pochettino plays football, it's not particularly similar to me. So when he's asked about who's your disciple, and he'll say the same about Pep to a certain extent, although I think Pep is way more tactically similar to Bielsa than Pochettino is in certain ways. I think, I think Pochettino was almost more Bielsa when he was at Southampton than he now is at Spurs. Yeah, that's interesting. That's something that I would have to I feel as though, properly look into to back up, but it feels yeah, like that. I feel as though Pochettino has become much more pragmatic yes, at Spurs. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, with caveats on what we mean by that. But yeah, I think for me, neither Biel, neither Guardiola nor uh, Pochettino are the same as, as... And that's why the question of legacy I find so interesting. Like, what, what does it count to influence someone? Or how do you trace a genealogy, like, be it, um, be it managers or players or whatever? But it, I, think, I don't think that he thinks... Again, this is why the idealism is so powerful and I think it needs to be talked about more. Because I think he just sort of sees himself as doing what football deserves. Um, and that's, that's what it is for him. And there is that obsession with the idea that you, you, you keep football moving on and, and, and you play that role in it. And I think he probably thinks, you know, after I'm dead, people aren't going to talk about me or think about me that much. But, but think of all of those people that influence. And there's play, the players as well, I think he sees. The, there's so many footballers who are playing now at high level where you think, do you know what? This player has become great. The great example is, is, is what Guardiola did with Sterling, right? Um, the impact that, that Guardiola had on Sterling. Bielsa has done that through his whole career. And we always think, I think, of footballers as having intrinsic talent. So you think, well, you know, Sterling was, Sterling's a great player now, but we always kind of knew that he, because we sort of back engineer it, we think, well, you know, if we look at the end point and we justify, but this, I, I always wonder this. I, was, I always want, there's so many players who are so genuinely thankful for the impact that he had on them. Yeah. And I think it's that, that they realize that without his input, they would never have fulfilled that potential in the way that they have. And that's a conversation that needs to be had as well when it comes to legacy. And I think it's interesting to pick up on that. Guardiola doesn't sign his own players again. When he moves from one club to another, no one goes with him. But he does sign former Bielsa players. Um, you know, Mendy was under Bielsa. Laporte was given his debut under Bielsa. Javi Martinez was moved to play centre-back under Bielsa. Mm. You know, there's, there, I think, is a recognition that these are players who can understand certain facets of the game because of who they, you know, and they, they were all players who who took that quantum stride in, in terms of how they yeah. played football under Bielsa. Yeah, I mean, even someone like Ander Herrera, who is like, is a sort of big The waste of Ander Herrera at Manchester, Manchester United yeah, exactly. is so disappointing to me. Because, because he went through that system and you know that he, the reason why he became a bit of a utility player at Manchester United was precisely because of the, the impact that Bielsa had on him. So for, for, me, for me, I think Bielsa does care about legacy, but it's not what we mean when we say legacy. It's... it's it's, he can look back on his life and say, I, I, I had an impact on that person. I had an impact on that fan base. I had an impact on, um, on, on that team. I had an impact on that, his, that history. 
and he's and that's what he's that's what he's looking for. He's not he he doesn't really give a shit about the book that I write because he doesn't see his impact having to be catalogued in order for it to exist. So anything that I'm doing is second order. It's it's writing about those things that concretely exist that he can look back on and say I'm I'm proud of of, of that thing that I achieved. But these things are and this feels like a good sort of point to to wind this conversation to a close but these these ultimately are intangibles and and we go back i think to that that dichotomy of you know bilardo the pragmatist versus monotti the the kind of almost mystic you know attacking mm. and creative but also that sense of passion and obligation and responsibility to to make people feel a certain way through through football as opposed to through painting or art or, or, or what have you. And Bielsa, I think, to me, seems very much like somebody who, who is actually in many, many ways far more Bilardo than he is Minotti in terms of his application of the game, you know, the, the training, the preparation, yeah. the, the rehearsing of moves. But the thing that matters more to him is actually that sense of the intangible, of the emotional, of the, you know, legacy as a series of memories, of passions, of achieving more than you had ever expected to and bringing joy. And, yeah. and that, that to me, you know, that, that is, that's his third way, is, is finding a pragmatic way to bring about an entirely feelings-based response. Yeah. But I, I, on top of that, I agree with that, but I would maybe soften it by saying, I think that he'll, he, he's always, des- he's fated to get to the end of his life and say, and still not know. So it, it, we, we spend all of our time talking about like who Bielsa is, as though he has this sort of like aggrandized like f- view of himself, which he's just happy and comfortable with it. And I think he's, that's what his brother means when he realizes that the battle is lost. I think he's always going to have that sense of regret because I think he feels as though he he could have done more or he could have done things differently. But it, it's that he doesn't want to say this way was the right way or this way was the right way. So at the end of the at the end of his life, he'll always be looking back and thinking, maybe I should have gone that. Maybe I should have just gone fully Bilardo. Maybe I should have gone fully Minotti. Um, and I think that's what's so fascinating about him. That's what I'm trying to get through in the book is that if if you're trying to find out who Bielsa is you've almost failed to begin with because I don't think he knows himself who he is. Um, and for him, the battle is, is, is always trying to, trying to um, decide who it is that he is and, and always feeling if he goes too far one way that he's got too much regret pulling him back the other way as well. So he just ends up sitting between those, those two worlds. And, but that, that, for me, that makes him so much more fascinating than so many people within the world of football that it, it, sort, of, it sort of boggles my mind that no one's written about him in English before, really. And he's certainly not in, in a, in a bio, biographical sense. Well, thank you very much, John, for joining us. Uh, in terms of where we can find your writing generally, uh, is there anything you'd like to currently plug? Anything? Yeah. How do we sign up to your newsletter? Yeah, so the best thing to do is to go to my Twitter page, uh, which is my Twitter account, which is at John underscore McKenzie. Um, John without an H and McKenzie with an A between the M and the C. Um, to be memorable about it. But at the top, the pinned tweet there is, is a link to the, the newsletter. So if you click on that, then um, you, you, it will take you through to that page. You can also read it as a blog as well, of course, and I do share those 
pieces when I remember on, on Twitter. So, And when are we likely to, to see some sort of finished product with regards to the book? Yeah, that's a good question. I, it, there's a tendency for, for these sorts of publications to want to be out quickly. Um, and there's, there's a sense in which the book itself can't be written quickly. <laughs> so it will, be, it will be sometime this year, hopefully. But we, we'll, we'll, I, I wait and see. Um, I don't know how long, how long it takes me to get all of that stuff out. So sorry, that's a really lame answer, isn't it? But no, it, it will be out in some form or other, I think, by Christmas. Excellent. Well, once it's out, you're, you're invited to come back and oh, discuss it with us further once you've sent me a proof copy, obviously. Oh, John, course. thanks very much for your time. And uh, listeners, we'll be back next week. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what with, because... Um, Joe's away, and this this is rather like the lunatics taking over the asylum. Um, but uh, we'll be back in some guys, and just to say uh, that uh, for the remainder of this week, um, as I said before, there will be additional videos uh, coming out on Bielsa. So we're looking at uh, who's influenced him, who his influences, or who he's gone on to influence. A kind of brief history of of him, and then a Leeds Tactics video. Um, so uh, check out the YouTube channel for those things and uh, thanks very much for joining us